Hey, welcome to the Common Good Podcast. It's May 4th. Uh, I'm Doug Padgett, and there is uh, Amanda Hi. having a drink. Having a drink already. Good, good to see you today. Wow, it is coffee, believe it or not. Yeah, well, it's uh, great. Well, I'm, I'm Amanda, we often start with just a brief conversation about where we are in the world and ask people who are watching to also tell us where they are. I'm in Minneapolis, Minnesota. It's going to be a great day. Sun is out. Spring is going to show up for an afternoon, at least here where we are. Amanda, I... I feel like you live in New York. I mean, you work at Middle Collegiate Church. You, uh, that's where I've always been with you. But then I feel like you moved. Is that, is that true? Did you? No, I'm in New York. I'm in New York. All right. I did. I spent um, maybe five years ago now, some time in Kentucky, which is where I'm originally from. But New York has been my home base since 2007. And I'm here right now. Well, if you're in the chat, let us know where you're listening from and where you're engaging from. And look, sometimes we talk about where we're from because it's chatty and it's fun and it's friendly and it helps people connect. Also, it's a bit of a metaphor of where we're coming from. And today's conversation about can we find a common good way to talk about Roe versus Wade and abortion in this country has become a more important question than it probably has been in the last 50 years. Because it's obvious now that the Supreme Court is not only going to rule on a case that's been brought to before the Supreme Court, but from the draft document of a ruling, they're going to overturn Roe versus Wade. And that means that a whole lot of other very complicated political and legal issues are going to be engaged. And most importantly, it means that the citizenry of this country are going to have to engage in thinking about abortion and legal access to abortion and when and how that's made available to people at a whole different level, because we're going to now move to states and state legislatures making decisions about abortion, where previously, because it was ruled as a constitutional right that certain limitations couldn't be put in place, it let people off the hook. And we could talk about abortion as a political, as a moral, as a religious issue, but you didn't have to. And in my view, Amanda, you've, you've done such great work on this. You, you have a, a public voice on these issues. You're, you're a pastor, dare say a, a Baptist reverend, which is awesome. And uh, you have a very clear view that abortion is something that we should be supporting women's right to, to choose. And we want to include that, that in this conversation for people. Many people will have never heard from a pastor who suggests that they should have a different view on abortion than the one that they hear from the religious right. So thank you for for sharing that today and for getting into this. And we hope that uh, by finding a common good way to talk about these issues, it opens up for people to be more open and more honest and more engaging in these issues. I will dare say that we will talk for the next you know 45 minutes or, or hour about this, and that will probably be longer conversation about abortion than most people have had in their lifetime about abortion. People just don't talk about it. I've talked with so many people for whom abortion, they say, is a very significant political issue for them. And when you ask them what conversations they've had about it, who they've met that's had an abortion, any of these issues, and very often they say very little conversation and I've met almost no one. So that's one of the sets of conditions that we're in and that we want to try to address here. So Amanda, uh, what are you thinking about all that? And, and talk a bit about, about your, own, your own understanding of, of abortion in this country and uh, how a person of faith should be approaching it. Thank you, Doug. Thanks for having me. And thanks for these conversations that you set um, continually. They're really, really important in, 
and uh, maintaining what's left of the fabric of this nation and creating um, a more liberated opportunity for all of us to thrive. So thank you all and everyone at Vote Common Good. Um, And thanks for tuning in. If you're listening live or if you'll be listening to this later, um, as Doug said, for some of you, this may be a conversation that feels uncomfortable or that is a first. And so welcome, uh, because, you know, first, maybe I will say that people have been having abortions uh, forever. And even though you may think that you have not met someone who has had an abortion, I can guarantee you that you have. And yet part of what is um, happening here is that we're realizing all of the harm that stigmatizing and decentralizing the abortion conversation has done. It's literally gotten us to this point where suddenly we have draconian restrictions that are attempting and are rolling back basic bodily rights, basic human rights that have been in place now for 50 plus years. I mean, it's not a, it's not a good it's not a good place to be. Um, it's definitely not a good place to be. You know, I've I am a pastor. I'm a consulting minister now with Middle Church, which is a, um, a really progressive um, women led black led um movement of love and justice that um, the Vote Common Good folks have been to several times. And our senior pastor, Reverend Dr. Jackie Lewis, um, has also been engaged with this community. And because of my position there and because I have preached a very bold um, from the pulpit of middle pro-abortion sermon, uh, people have been reaching out to me in the past couple of days and saying, Um, I'm not doing well. I'm really, really triggered. Remember that sermon you preached back in December? Now I really want to dive into some of the Mm -hmm. theological implications and things that you raised there. You know, I knew it was important then, but now I'm like, oh my gosh, like we're really here. So how do I have these conversations as a person of faith? How do I hold um, convictions that I thought I believed since the time that I was born with a new way of talking about abortion? And I'm being very intentional here, Doug, in saying the word abortion. Yeah, I can tell. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because um, I think it was Liz was said um, yesterday at a gathering here who said, as people have been saying for so long, we can't defend something that we can't name. Mm. So we can dance around um, words for this. We can dance around reproductive justice, reproductive freedom, and all of those are good. And I really um, am also an advocate for talking about reproductive justice and reproductive freedom. Those are coins that terms that were coined by Sister Song Collective out of Atlanta, which is a black led organization. And I lift up their work to you all as well. But we also need to be very specific in saying the word abortion, um, because that's going to help us destigmatize this and defend what I truly believe is a moral right and a sacred right for all people, any person who's pregnant, um, to be able to have. Um, let me just stop there for a second and see if there's any part of that that you want to. Yeah, I do. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I, I really like this and think this is an important part of the conversation about how we frame it. A lot of people who are pro-life um, talk about being pro-life and people who are on the other political side will regularly remind all the rest of us that you're not pro-life, you're just against abortion or you're pro-forced birth or something like this, right? There's there's a, a word game that goes on here, right, where people name their own space and then other people 
critique it or condemn it, right? That that's a very common common practice, which I don't think helps all that much. I think, you know, in a in a personal conversation with someone, it's helpful to say, I'm not sure you have a total ethic of life here. You know, I think you're, you know, um, maybe leaning on one issue and, and miscategorizing it. But when we do that, you know, publicly, it, it, it functions differently. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that. And most people that I know want to say I'm pro-choice. I, I think women have a right to choose. I'm not commenting about being for abortion or against it. I just think that's between a woman and her doctor and a partner if they want and their faith or God or however the person puts it together. But the government should stay out of it. And it's all about choice. So I'm pro-choice, not pro-abortion. And I hear you saying, look, we have to talk about it in additional ways to that. Um, so, so say more if you would. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll, I'll start with that one. You know, I think at this specific moment, it's really important that we do say pro-abortion if this is where we are, um, and I am, because of the danger and because specifically of what the Supreme Court is doing. The Supreme Court in this leaked draft that we know is going to pass has said, no, we actually are specifically taking away abortion access. So that's that's what we that's where we are here. And when we when we follow that path, when we follow that trail, it gets really, really scary. And one of the things that I would love for this conversation to do is to go beyond just the single wedge issue that it is, because it has been a wedge issue, especially for white women, Christian voters for so long. We can no longer see this issue as a single issue. Because it's not. And the far right, the the uh, whether we're talking religious right or which, you know, the religious right often correlates with um, the political right. Mm-hmm. They've never seen this as just a single issue. It's always been um, part of a larger web of control of both what is seen as morally right and good in this country and of the patriarchy and to be quite honest of whiteness and white supremacy. Mm-hmm. We can we can go there in a minute. But just to say a little bit more about what I mean about um, the danger that this leaked document sets for us. If we use the precedent of, you know, right to privacy and originalists, which so many of the Supreme Court justices now are openly, then we, then all of a sudden we have so many basic human rights that are threatened, that are up for that are up to be completely rebuked. And that includes the right for people to marry whom they love. For gay and lesbians to marry, that includes more voting rights that will be rolled back. That includes the right to voluntary worship. That includes interracial marriages. All of these Supreme Court cases that have been passed to allow these things are suddenly up for debate and up for, um, you know, fear of being restricted because of the precedent that rolling back Roe versus Wade, which is in a, an abortion um, court case, which, which it does. And so that's why I think that's one reason why I think it's really important that we do say abortion um, mm-hmm. at this moment. And, and also just because of what you laid out at the beginning, that we've been able to dance around this. 
and and not talk about it for mm-hmm. decades now. Um, and all of a sudden, oh my gosh, I I know someone. I have not personally had an abortion, but I can't tell you the number of people that I know that have had an abortion that has literally saved their life, that has been the best decision they could make, that has been a prayerful and grace-filled and divine decision, which I think is important too. You know, when we relegate um, someone's decision to have an abortion to the cases of incest or rape, then we're ba- what are we really saying? We're saying that someone should only have the right to make a decision about their body in those two extreme instances. No, we need to pull back and say in the same way that God loved and created every single being on this earth. God loved and created the person who is carrying a potential new life. And God instills in that person who is carrying the potential new life, the ability to make decisions that are best. Yeah, and so and that person is taken out of the conversation. That's right. Yeah. And, and you, you have this great article in the Baptist News that talks about um, your own public engagement with this at the Supreme Court. And you, you tell these two little anecdotes, one where you're holding a sign advocating that your faith calls you to support abortion as an option for people in this country and and claiming the Jesus narrative of your Christian faith. And another person is standing next to you who has the same sign uh, with Jesus on it, but says they're against abortion. So it that's that's this contrast that, that we live with, that people can both claim the same root, the same faith, the same spiritual leader, and yet end up on two different points. And then you tell another story where some young men are there and they're yelling at you saying, when does life begin? And after they pepper you with this question and you're telling of a story, you say, hey, I think there's another question we should be answering uh, rather than just that one. So I want you to talk a bit about that. But do you think that that question, when does life begin, is something that we need to be talking about and be better at talking about? Because the Supreme Court's ruling of Roe versus Wade put a limit on when abortions can happen. The anti-abortion movement in this country wants to say that, that Democrats and people who support abortion say that you should be able to abort your child for any reason you want all the way up till the state of birth. No one is arguing that, right? So there, there is a point at which terminating a pregnancy is something that we don't allow people to do. So that's been a constant argument. That's the basis of this, of this Mississippi law, which is to establish 15 weeks as the time in which an abortion can be uh, done, or six weeks now is what Oklahoma is saying, and maybe some other states. So there's this conversation in here about when in the development of, uh, of a fetus and, uh, the pregnancy can be terminated. Do you feel like that's important conversation or do you feel like, hey, that distracts us from this other conversation that we need to have first and we should have the other one second? How, how do you deal with that? Because my pro-choice friends are just, especially the ones who say life begins at conception, like the moment sperm meets egg, that's it. You're talking about, you know, the same category of life that you have with you and I here right now. So that's obviously been a point of contention and a point of conversation. Where do you think that lies in, in how people address these issues? 
It is definitely a question that we have to engage, Doug, because it is a sticking point for so many people. Um, so I think we can't deny that. We're not afraid of that question, right? But it's also, in my opinion, not the question. And when we focus on that, we're still being distracted. And so because then all of a sudden, it's a conversation that involves medical experts and scientists and biologists and people who are who are all actually going to have a different definition and understanding of that. And I think a better question for people of faith might be rather, where is God? Where is God in this conversation? And when you do that, then you begin to see that God is all over it. God is everywhere in this conversation. And the God that I know is one who ultimately cares about liberation and justice for all and love and equal opportunities for all to thrive. And so if that's our end goal, hmm. then where is God over here in all the logistics and the details, which, you know, then also, Doug, we get into talking about, you know, IVF and 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 mm-hmm. and babies who are also have been um, I can't think of the exact word right now, but the sperm has met the egg. Right. They're yeah. here. And are we advocating for all? I mean, this is just crazy. You could also say that every time intercourse happens, there's a possibility of life to to form. Right. And are we really restricting that? No, I don't think we are. So I think that that just gets into be a very, very sticky um, conversation Mm -hmm. that is a distraction. And I would even say another tool for patriarchy and whiteness to distract to meet their end goal, which is continual domination, rather than what's really going on here. So when I say where is God and like how might um, a God who I understand to be constantly working for um, reconciliation and liberation be? Well, that God really cares about the totality of what's going on here. Hmm. And there's so many ways that that God comes in and says, hold on a second, what's going on? First of all, that God understands that the roots of this dominant story, which is telling one of this is what it means to be morally good and morally right. It means to be in this instance um, voting for anti-abortion. Let's say that, you know, voting with anti and anti-abortion lens. God understands that the roots of that movement were racist, that actually a bunch of people in the 1960s were flipping out because of liberal gains in politics. And they were looking around and saying saying to each other, and I'm talking about white men here, right, Christian men, saying, well, what can we do to prevent President Carter from getting a second term? Because we're starting to lose power. Our our, um, masculinity, our control, our domination of whiteness, Christianity, and the patriarchy is starting to be threatened. So what can we do? And they were really brilliant in saying, well, let's use unborn babies. Yeah, this is this is that question of when did when did the religious right take on abortion as their primary issue? And it's documented as you've done in in, in presentations and writing that there was a there was a point that that choice was made um, to say, let's make it about abortion. And a lot of people had to switch their views. We've interviewed a guy named Frank Schaefer here and his dad, Francis Schaefer. He and his dad went around the country 
saying to people, you're going to now be anti-abortion or we will turn away from you. And this is now our issue to really accomplish these other goals of the right wing, which had a lot to do with allowing private institution, private college institutions, Christian ones, to continue racist, racist policies. Okay, so I, and I th- that's an important argument. Uh, can, can I ask you to reflect on this story too? I, uh, I have a Black Lives Matter sign behind me. I have one in my yard. When we tour with the Vote Common Good tour, we put Black Lives Matter signs out. I have had so many conversations with people, including one in a bar in Florida in the middle of COVID with a bunch of Proud Boys, full on like. You had a bar in the middle of COVID in Florida? With you Proud Boys. You missed the point. With Proud Boys trying to talk about, uh, you know, this stuff. I had a mask on. I was the only one. Okay. I was like, wow. And <laughs> they would go on these this long bit about. Do you know who the founders of Black Lives Matter are? Do you know where they studied? Do you know that they use Act Blue and that they raise this money and the organization and the people behind it and who they are? And I do know all that. And I also said, but that doesn't matter to me. We're part of the same movement that we say Black Lives Matter. They initiated it. I'm glad to be part of it. But I really don't feel like I need to defend every decision they've made, how they function. Now, this was only, you know, five and six years ago that this effort was started. I think a lot of people hear this critique and say, I get it. That's what in the 1960s and 70s, religious people wanted to use abortion for that reason. But that's not why I think about it this way. So I have my own reasons for thinking about abortion the way that I do and to say that I can't have that view because people who also held that view were using it for other purposes seems to imply that the only reason you would have this view is for that purpose. And I'm wondering if that's what, if that's true, if that's what you're saying, that one can't have an anti-abortion stance without it being impugned by the way previous movements used it. Because a lot of Catholics will say, we've been anti-abortion from start to finish. Like never, you know, we didn't go through that. Those, those fundamentalists and evangelicals joined our, uh, our movement, right? We, we weren't doing that. So can you just talk a little bit about how we, um, how we deal with, we that? Do with that? Yeah. 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 That's a great, that's a really great question. Um, one, I think it's false to say completely, that's not me. And what I mean by that is that these stories of domination are so prevalent in our culture. That's why they're dominant stories. That's why they have won elections. That's why they've organized so well that we can't actually say that's not me because somewhere in our psyche, we've also been formed by that. And so we've also and, you know, in just the same way that I own that all the things that my ancestors did to black and indigenous people in this country I can't completely distance myself from that. Now, I don't walk around, you know, every day feeling guilty about that because there's things that I can do to process that and then and then move away and differentiate myself from that. But I also can't say that I haven't been formed by that narrative and that that hasn't some way gotten me to where um, to be who I am and to have the access to the things that I have today. Okay, so I think that that's important. And two, we can't not keep telling the racist roots of these laws 
because to do that too is also a disservice. And so I think at the same time, yep. no, we can't get stuck there. And and let's talk about how we 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 talk to someone who you know says, well, that's that's never been me. Um, but also, we can't never stop telling that because the harmful racist roots of this movement are so prevalent and so real that we have to keep saying that. Also, those racist roots aren't just in the past. They are still very, very much a part of what anti-abortion laws do today. And, and what do I mean by that? Well, I mean in all the ways that systemic racism shows up in our healthcare system, in access to um, care, and how we are able to care for babies once they're born. Um, and so what does that have to do with abortion? Well, well we're really talking about who do whose lives do we value mm-hmm. then when we are saying we want to res- we are going to restrict abortion laws. We know statistically who is going to suffer most when Roe is officially overturned. And you know, Doug, you could say that with me. It's black women. It is all poor women. It's indigenous women. It's Latinx women. And so to go back to my further, my my point from a few minutes ago, where is God in this conversation? God's not the one asking where does life begin? God's everywhere all over it. So a God of liberation also says, I care Mm -hmm. about the injustice that happens all the way around this conversation. I mean, Doug, you know, just as like add a couple of more statistics into this to further prove my point about how this overturning row is racist. The U.S. is the only industrialized nation in the world where maternal mortality is rising. So that that means that that this is also a very, very inherently sexist law. Right. U.S. ranks 33 out of 36 in infant mortality. Infant mortality among Blacks and Latinx are more than twice the national average. The national Black maternal mortality rate is 44 deaths per 100,000 compared to only 17 white deaths. And so these are very, very racist ways that raising and bearing children play out um, in our society. And so to not understand that God would care about that, too. Um, I can't, I can't wrap my head around that. Yeah, I, I hear you. I hear you. And look, I'm, I'm supportive of abortion choices for women, but all those statistics exist in a world in which Roe is the law of the land. So I'm not sure how we connect. If we remove Roe, it's going to cause those things to be worse because apparently Roe has not been significant enough to prevent that from, from being a problem. You see what I'm saying? Because I think where people get stuck on this is they have very simple ways of looking at these issues. And for sure, they understand that limiting abortion, making it more difficult is going to be harder on people who have less status in our society. Everything is harder on people with less status in our society, for sure. So when you make limit anything, it's going to be harder on on people who have less resources. And typically, people who don't have economic resources have been black and brown people in this country, disproportionate to, to, to white people. So it's going to fall harder. Yes, there's, there's no doubt. But there's this other argument, and you know, your, I thought your contrast of like two people just shades apart with fundamentally different arguments. 
the pro-life people that I hear from, they talk about how abortion is fundamentally racist because it targets certain audiences of people and they look at you know, uh, abortion rates that are higher among black and brown people in this country. And they're wondering why that's the case. And is that because there's an industry that's targeting them? So a lot of pro-life voters are hearing something about the racist issues around abortion, and they're hearing a totally different interpretation of it. Do you, do you hear that same thing? And, and how do you, how do you help people sort of navigate that? Yeah, I've definitely heard that. And, you know, just to say to like, like Doug, you know, to the, the the point of like okay so these statistics are here and Roe is is already here you know yeah. so what does that again there that goes back to my point that this isn't just us we cannot have this mm-hmm. conversation in a vacuum mm-hmm. right because you know yeah these statistics are already this bad because patriarchy and white supremacy run supreme in this country right mm-hmm. so like they're already there and we do have you know, a you some might call it a protection of Roe in place. However, yes, when this is overturned, these will even more exponentially um, rise, and so we can't yeah. not like hold that. You know, I think I saw somebody put in the in the comments that Jesus is intersectional. Absolutely, and that's like a real. Um, pillar of my faith, which applies to this conversation as well, that this we have to approach with an intersectional lens, which, of course, is a a coin is a term from Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, never said in the Bible, but demonstrated by (laughs) Jesus so many times in the way that he lived and in the way that I truly believe if he were walking around here today, um, he would be voting. And now I've forgotten what you asked me to talk about right now. Well, well, this the, this question of do you think uh, the people who make the other argument that the more racist approach to this, because when someone raises this conversation with their friend and they say, hey, you know, I've been really realizing that there's racist implications in abortion. They're going to get hit with this response from people that is, oh, yeah, there is. You know, I just heard a person on NPR and she was from the Susan B. Anthony Foundation. She was making this argument yesterday that there's an implicitly racist bias toward the people who want to support abortion because, and then she fills in the blank with a, with a number of statistics. So when people have this conversation, you know, in their own minds or with a friend or they bring it up or they Google it or whatever, all of a sudden they get met with, wow, there's another argument. And, and how do you help people to navigate, you know, their, because as we now start talking about this more in our society, boy, people are going to find out that there are all kinds of things that they hadn't been thinking about going on here. Yeah, I think I would encourage that person, you know, who's making the, the racism argument from the other angle um, to also take a big umbrella step back and to look at also that. Um, what are all the underlying issues here? What are all the different implications here? Um, because race loss isn't just the only issue, right, that's ever at yeah. play. It's economics, it's class, it's privilege, um, it's access. Uh, race is is one thing at play. And so if, if, you know, I heard someone make the, you know, say, I think when I was at the Supreme Court, well, they're putting up more abortion clinics in black neighborhoods. That's so yeah. racist, you know, yeah. and uh, no, like that's, that's, that's really, that's really not it. If independent clinics, which I encourage everyone to support, that's one tangible thing that we can do in this moment, um, are in specific zip codes or neighborhoods. Um, that's because they, they need to be there because those are the individuals who need those services and who most, um, 
who most need to access those services. Now we could get into a whole conversation about why neighborhoods are the way they are and yeah. redlining and gentrification and all those things. Um, but I think always we have to look at all the different um, interlocking um, realities that are true for any conversation that we're trying to have mm-hmm. or instance mm-hmm. that we're trying to pull. Yeah, that's great. I, I think uh, Monica makes a great point here in the chat. She says, Monica Guerin, she says, um, she's talking about access to health care. If pregnancy is forced, but there's no attention to access to parental care for all, again, those statistics will grow. So I think what she's raising here is that when pregnancy is something that someone has to continue Mm-hmm. That has great implication across their life and across the healthcare system. And um, I think it's the I, I've forgotten the name now of the the foundation, the 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 Gunnerbach, the 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 Goomerbach Foundation. Sorry, I've forgotten this. Um, they're sort of one of the leading um, authorities. Uh, they're a pro-choice organization on the statistics around abortion, and they've okay. they've run the numbers like if twenty-five states kick in previous laws or trigger laws, how, what, what's going to be the impact on the number of abortions? And their conclusion is somewhere around 13% less abortions will happen in the country because wealthy women will travel, people will use mail order birth control or uh, um, uh, uh, abortion pills. There's going to be a whole set of things that, so there's going to be a group of people Poorer people, people without access, people without uh, personal uh, networks and resources, and that number's going to, you know, going to drop. So people are looking at this stuff, you know, very tactically about what's the implication and where's the implication going to happen. But if you were to add 13% more pregnancy uh, demand on the system, our healthcare system is barely functioning as it is, right? Especially prenatal uh, healthcare and postnatal and care of mothers like when this happens we have to look as a nation and say are we prepared in places where very yeah. often the that 13% is not going to be evenly spread around the country right it's not going to be in california it's not going to be in new york it's not going to be in right? minnesota it's going to be in places that often doesn't have a very good healthcare system happening anyway and yeah, so it's going to be very, these are the kinds of issues that also sort of show up when you make, when, when you make this Absolutely. kind of change. Absolutely. And the people who will be most adversely impacted by this are economically poor and black and brown indigenous um, individuals. And um, even though it's important also, as we had this conversation to remember that anyone um, can can be pregnant and have an abortion and want an abortion, women statistically are the ones who most um, have abortions. And so, of course, again, it's a it's a sexism issue as well. And just to throw in the intersectionality piece um Further, you know, Doug, you mentioned the states, the 24 states who are like primed and set and ready to restrict abortion um, as soon as this is overturned. Those are the same 24 states who in 2013, when the Voting Rights Act was diminished, um, rolled back voting rights. Yeah. And so we can't um, again, we just cannot have this conversation in a vacuum because the attack on Roe is an attack on voting rights. It is attack on interracial marriage. It is an attack on trans individuals. It is an attack on lesbian and gay individuals. It is an attack on women. 
It is an attack on so many of us. And we have seen that statistically show up in how policies um, have been rolled back um, in states that are voting similarly. And it's it's really, really frightening. It's really frightening. So, so t- talk about that for people who don't know how to make that connection. And they're like, what in the world would reversing Roe versus Wade have to do with voting rights? How do we get there? So there's a couple ways that I've heard that argument. I'm interested in your responses to it. One is that a number of those issues that you've, that you named have their constitutional support rooted in the privacy clause of the 14th amendment. Now we're being sort of nerdy here around this stuff, but you know, the, some issues are complicated and you kind of got to deal with the, with the specifics of them. So in the 14th Amendment, there's a privacy clause. And it was that clause that was used in Roe versus Wade decision to say that a woman has the right to terminate a pregnancy up to 20, I think then 24 weeks. Now it's 22 weeks. Some states, it might be 19 weeks. So there was a privacy clause. That same argument has been made on these other issues around marriage, around um, uh, civil rights, a whole lot of things use the 14th Amendment. And one argument is that the way that this draft judgment treats the argument of privacy in the 14th Amendment could then be copied and pasted and applied to these other issues. So right. will the Supreme Court use this ruling as precedent toward those other issues? Now, that gets into case law and precedents and and on what basis you're utilizing some arguments. So it's not so clear as to, like, they're not removing the 14th Amendment by, by removing this, right? So there's some arguments to happen over time. So that's one piece. I'm interested in your thoughts on that. The other is yeah. that people say, when politically people win who have this view, that's going to be catchy, either because people support it more or they're emboldened or they're proven right. And so the same places that then are passing these restrictive abortion laws are just going to start passing a bunch of other laws that we would have, we would also say to ourselves, there's no way that is ever going to be made illegal. Like, I'll tell you, I've, I'm stunned by the conversation we're having to have. I have spent 25 years saying we are never overturning Roe versus Wade in this country. Like, that's mm. just not going to happen. It is now settled to a point, especially after, you know, 1991 Casey versus Planned Parenthood. Like it's settled. Well, turns out it isn't. Maybe it's a combination of those two, but when you say it's an attack on this other important list of of issues, is it because you're talking about the Supreme Court could take away the argument from the 14th Amendment, or are you saying it's a larger cultural kind of effect? I'm saying both, actually. And I think that's an important um, point to make. I think the scariness is exactly what you pulled out about this um, privacy um, clause or law, whatever they're calling it, that can then apply to all these other different Supreme Court cases. There's a really great threat, not great, depressing thread on Twitter by someone named A-H-R-E-A-U-M-E, who, who literally laid all of these out. Like Roe versus Wade is based on the right to privacy. If the majority opinion by SCOTUS suggests that the Constitution does not protect the right to privacy, it affects a whole lot of other decisions, like you said. And so here's just some of them they laid out. Lawrence versus Texas decided in 2013. Um, that has to do with um, sodomy. Uh, Griswold versus Connecticut, 1965, that protects the ability of married couples to buy contraceptives without restriction. Loving versus Virginia, the 1968 case, which threw out laws banning interracial marriages. 
Um, let's see what else. Oberfield versus Hodges, the 2015 opinion that legalized same-sex marriage. Meyer versus Nebraska, 1923 ruling, allows families to decide for themselves if they want their children to learn a language other than English. Skinner versus Oklahoma, 1942. I mean, it goes on and on. And yeah. so, yes, losing using that um, privacy clause um, can absolutely be applied if we set this president by overturning um, Roe. And I actually believe that that's what the Supreme Court justices want in most of these cases. And then I also do think that I'm talking about it from um, a, a more meta sociological and theological standpoint, which is an attack on one of us is an attack on all of us, period. And when we are attacking pregnant people's bodies, we are also attacking trans people's bodies, black people's bodies, poor people's bodies, because we as people of faith must understand the intersectionality. I think I made up that word, intersectionality, (laughs) that our faith calls us to. That's just who Jesus was. That is literally who Jesus was. When he's Mm. talking to the woman at the well, he sees that woman for all of who she is. Someone of a different religion, someone of who has um, had inter um, out of wedlock sexual relations, someone who is poor. Jesus sees all of that and says, I see you. I've got you. And here's some water. Yeah. Yeah. And don't judge her. Um, I just want to put a point on if the Supreme Court does make the argument that abortion cannot utilize the privacy clause for its rationale, that doesn't mean the privacy clause of the 14th Amendment is gone. I just think people need to recognize this, that what the Supreme Court is saying, and I just heard last night some old recording of Bork, you know, uh, Judge Bork and his uh, his uh, own confirmation hearings going on and on about why he thinks the rationale for Roe was wrong, not making an argument about this or that of the morality, but just he, he said you can't make that argument that way. He wasn't then, of course, you know, um, confirmed as, an, as a Supreme Court justice and all the other Supreme Court justices learned don't answer that question and just, you know, fib on your answer if you need to. Don't tell people what you're thinking. But I do think it's possible, and I want to just encourage people who could be concerned that the Supreme Court is not removing the 14th Amendment or the Privacy Clause. They're saying the Privacy Clause does not fit here. I think it does fit there. I think the Solicitor Generals who argued the case think it fits there. I think the Supreme Court for 50 years has believed that it fit this court saying that it doesn't. This is where consequences play out for who's appointed to the Supreme Court because these different views have their implications. But I just think it's important. I think it's important that we look at the concerns. And I actually think the second concern you have, which is this is hinting to pass a bunch of laws and run them up the proverbial flagpole and see where they land with the Supreme Court, that's going to be a great implication. That's my own personal belief on this. And less likely that interracial marriage is now going to be overturned by the same Supreme Court for a whole lot of reasons, including I think, you know, Judge Clarence Thomas would have a very difficult time talking about that one over the dinner table with his wife who happens to support insurrection. So I don't know that it's necessarily going to go, it's necessarily going to go that far. Or that that's the for sure consequence of this. But I think what's helpful about you raising it, and I want to see if you have some more to say about it, is that it's very, 
these are the issues that we have to become good at talking about. If we're going to talk about not just the individual morality of someone should have an abortion or not, which I think mm -hmm, we should mm -hmm. be better at too. Your earlier right. comments that it's often characterized in shame and in privacy and people don't know, that's a real problem. The fact that we're still at a point where a, a congresswoman who tells her own story, as has happened in the last couple of years, that she's had an abortion. There were, have been two or three of those, um, you know, some that were medically driven, some that were circumstantially um, uh, you know, uh, driven for, for the person, that they're spoken about as if they're incredibly brave people who did a heroic thing by being willing to talk about this out loud. The fact that we don't talk about abortion or mm -hmm. people who've had them, mm -hmm. that it, it's still clouded in the secrecy. Yeah. So yeah. to be able to talk about it, all of a sudden is going to lead to, well, what do you think about Roe versus Wade? And yeah. then people are going to be like, well, I don't even know. Like, I'm sure people are listening to this right now and they're like, how do these people even know what the 14th Amendment is? How do they even know that there's a privacy clause? Well, the only reason I know about the privacy clause in the 14th Amendment is because Roe versus Wade was based on it, right? And right, that's been right. contentious. Or I, I don't actually spend my time thinking about constitutional law arguments, um, but all of a sudden on this one, you know, we're now, now we find ourselves in the midst of it. Yeah. I'm looking up cause I want to lift up. Um, I want to make sure I say her name, right. But there's a really beautiful campaign right now out of an organization called we testify. Um, and I think the founder's name is, is Beverly, but I can get back to you on that. Um, but they are the ones who, who started this phrase, um, everybody loves someone who's had an abortion. Oh, I didn't know that, about this moment. That is um, such a powerful campaign because we do also have to he oh. keep the very humanness in this conversation, yes. right? Everybody loves someone who's had an abortion. That's the truth. And I think, you know, mm, I great. am a pastor. And for us to, to bring this, um, you know, back into it too, for the people who, the person who does decide to have an abortion, it's really painful to imagine that that wasn't an intentional, prayerful, hard decision for that person to make too. Yeah. And so to also, you know, throw this around like, oh, people are just like making flippant decisions and not thinking about anything. That's a harmful narrative, yeah. right? I mean, just in the same way that, you know, Doug, I would imagine you're very intentional about how you take care of yourself. You go to your appointments, you make decisions about what you eat and drink and not to uh, relegate. I'm not I'm not trying to diminish, diminish this um, choice, but I'm trying to say yeah. someone who makes the decision to have an abortion is also a complicated, layered um, decision that they have made. And so where is God in that? Yeah. God's there saying, I love you. Yeah. I see you. And I believe that you. If, if abortion were not sitting in our society as such a politically explosive and culturally taboo issue, we would be better. Uh, yeah. I, I, I've told this story a couple of times. We've talked about this in the podcast. But I'm interested in your, your take on it. We, we were doing an event in, um, Pennsylvania supporting a person running for Congress named Connor Lamb. He's now running for Senate and we hope that he wins in Pennsylvania. And a bunch of anti-abortion protesters came to our outdoor public rally that we were hosting uh, for him. And I met with them ahead of time and said, look, you're welcome to, to protest here. Um, there's just some rules of behavior that we'd like you to engage in. And, you know, this is how we want it to go. And you're 
but you're welcome to be, you know, we'd reserve this park outside. And so we got to say how things went there. But I didn't want to tell these people that their point couldn't be made. I thought it was important that we, you know, take on all the political points at a political rally, right? And there's a way to do that. So at the end of the rally, one particular leader of this thing, I, I spoke with him. He's uh, in his 60s, uh, early 60s. And I said, um, no, late 60s. I said, you, you seem like you've been about this for a long time. And he said, um, yeah, you know, I got into it in 1974 as a teenager and I've been doing rallies and holding signs and all this. And I said, I'm sure over all those years and all the rallies you've done and the organizing, you've heard so many of these stories from women who've had abortions. Like, how, how does that impact you? And he said, no, I haven't. In fact, I don't know anybody who's had an abortion. He goes, well, hang on, maybe I know one. She's now in our movement, but, but no, I, I don't really talk to people who've had abortions. And I was really struck, right? Here is someone, it's not like we can put the argument off and say, people just don't think about it and talk about it. So it never comes up. This man has organized his life for 50, almost nearly 50 years around this issue. And yet he's never spoken to someone. And, and that, so this idea that everyone loves someone who's had an abortion is a real thing. And I know a lot of pro-choice people who also have never talked about this issue. Everything yeah. they know, everything they convey is a phrase they've heard from someone else. Yeah. And they yeah. don't have this personal experience. Um, and at the same time, I'm like, well, people's personal painful experiences are not our learning tool. So it's not on them to be offering themselves to the rest of us. So it's this dilemma that we're in, right? We want to talk about it, um, but boy, yeah. it, it, I, it is I tough. I hear that. I also have really learned a lot from the leaders of this movement, which are mostly Black women and people who have had abortions. And they really are saying, look, this we want to be the ones who are in the front of this movement saying, I'm, I am not ashamed that this was a decision that I made, which was best um, for myself at this time. So I think as long as we can make ourselves open to letting those people um, lead and have space and agency as they want, then I think we're doing well. I do want to say that it was it's Renee Bracey Sherman, who's the founder of We Testify, who coined that um that frame, that phrase. And I know we're coming to the end of our time, Doug, but I do want to just like kind of bring in one other sort of just, I think, important angle to this. Um, And, you know, that is what does this conversation also from a large um, societal theological standpoint have to do with the young people that we're raising? You know, I'm a mom. Mm -hmm. I have three kids, um, two of whom are white boys. And, you know, there is uh, hero narratives in this country stick also and, and savior narratives. And I think a lot of the draw and appeal to, you know, young white Christian men who are in this fight and are anti-abortion is that I'm saving the unborn babies. This is me. This is my fight. I'm a hero in this. And that's dangerous. It's really, really dangerous um, because what are they also? What are what are you also doing in that? You are having blatant control over someone else's body, mm. and that's really, really dangerous. 
And so to we have to keep also talking about how the patriarchy is such a force in this conversation. Um, and, and again, you know, somebody might say, well, I'm not, that's not how I came to it. It actually is because this is the society that we live in. And these are the dominant stories um, that are, that are present. And so we, it's important, you know, to me too, to be able to say, look, at a basic level, we believe that individuals can make the best choice about their body and not be forced um, in an act of what to you is sexual pleasure to carry out something that was never intended or that they wanted um, to have. And so I was with, I was having a conversation with a parishioner this morning and she said, so the question I'm asking is what are other leading narratives that we can teach our young boys that we're raising? What are other stories that we can say, look, it's not that I, you know, sure. Like, but let's figure out a better story for you. Like, how can you then, if that's, you know, if, if we know that these um, narratives are dominant, you know, could you really galvanize around the plight of incarcerated people? Could you really galvanize around, um, maternal health issues, which are the worst for black women. Um, you know, what is, what is a narrative that then you can galvanize mm-hmm. this? You want to save something. There's a lot of things that we could do a lot better. Yeah. Well, that's so well said, uh, Amanda. And I think so important that, because there's a lot of protect and save narratives going on with all this. Like for some of us, like our faith compels us to the least of these. And that can tip very quickly into, a. Mm-hmm savior narrative. One group mm-hmm. feeling like they're trying to save women that don't have protections. Another yep. group saying I'm saving yeah. babies. And then you feel like you're in the middle of an argument where two saviors are trying to say if their constituency is more worth saving and yeah. there's the fight we have. Right. Yeah. Um, it's a big one. I, I do think a lot of people who are in the save babies narrative, um, they're just locked in there. Like if you believe that life Mm -hmm. begins at conception or that there's no distinguishing between life at one week and life at, you know, the full 40 weeks before delivery or 36 weeks, that abortion would feel to you like something that would be as intolerable as if someone said to me, as someone who supports abortion rights for women, to be able to say, no, I don't think a woman at 38 weeks should just say, I don't want to have this child abort it. Like that's not morally reasonable. And we should not allow that in the United States without any, you know, if there's you know, a, a healthy baby. So these people are arguing at eight weeks, you make that argument. Okay. So I think that's in the mix. I do think we have to, people have to come to some point of rebutting the life begins at conception argument. If you're going to say, because the the thing that you've said so eloquently here and so importantly is, you know, uh, God's in all. Well, there's some yeah. people that are like, and I'm sure they're saying it out loud now, what about the baby? Because I, the reason I know that is we've traveled the country and talk about political issues yeah. with faith people. They shout it at us all the time. Sometimes we we have a little insider jokes in the Vote Common Good world about how many times we've heard people yell at us, what about the babies? Like the two things people would yell at us when we're traveling the country. More than what about her emails? Really? Yeah. Yeah. For us, it's what about the babies and who paid for your bus? Uh, Because somehow it's babies and George Soros. That's the thing that motivates them. But really, we heard that conversation so frequently. What about the babies? And 
it's an it's it's a real question, you know, um, where where someone lands on that and how we get to that. I'm not sure. How, I mean, I know where I am uh, on that on yeah. that issue, and I know that some people are trying to say, look, the rest of the civilized world has an abortion limit at 15 weeks. Germany, Norway, other places, not where we have it in the United States. Couldn't we move the number back to a different point of viability based on this and that? That's a conversation that is very alive and well in this world. And then there's what the Supreme Court seems to be saying, which is we're going to now attack Roe on its viability as being originally uh, legitimately argued, which I think is the worst thing the Supreme Court could have done on this on this particular issue because it conflates now two moral issues. Basically, if you look at Alito's draft argument, he's basically saying, I'm not even going to get into the issue of the morality or the rightness or wrongness or the humanity here. This is just how it's been argued. And do we have the right to overturn it because it was wrong there? Like, Seriously, that's what you're doing right now with this issue is, is saying that this thing that's been seen as a fundamental right to women is now going to be lost because of a technicality. Like you're going to go back and play instant slow motion replay on the arguments that were made and then overrule it. That's part of what's just fueling people into this incessant uh, or into the sense of being uh, it's just intolerable uh, what, what's happening. So all this is sort of mixed up. Uh, yeah. so, sorry to interrupt you there. Go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, it's so much. And I mean, and Doug, like y'all have been doing that hard work <laughs> that so many of us don't even have the bandwidth for of engaging, you know, the other sides, you know, whatever side you're on, it is important and necessary work. And so you have heard that um, so often. And, you know, just to, to to say, like, what's my like gut reaction to that? Like, what what's a response that I would I would say is, you know, what about the babies? What about a God of liberation and justice? Yeah. What about that God? What is yeah. that God saying? Because we can, again, fight about that question in my mind is still a distraction and it is still a tool of the patriarchy and it's still a tool of white supremacy and Christian nationalism, to be quite honest, to be able to distract from what about a God of liberation and justice? What is that God saying in this moment? Because that God cares about everything in that in that moment. And that God understands that it's much bigger than just whatever the fetus is that you are trying to focus on in this moment. What, what is God saying? Where is God? God's, God's with that person who got is pregnant and making this decision. God is thinking about what is the, going to happen once this thing comes into the earth. If it does, God is thinking about the care that is available or not. God is thinking about um, the access to basic necessities that are necessary, thinking about the ability of the pregnant person's life to continue to thrive or not. God's thinking mm-hmm. about the babies that are probably already in that home. Um, so what what about a God of liberation yeah. and justice is my kind of response there. So good. Hey, uh, we're, we're sort of over time what we promised, you know, what we would do here, but do you have a minute for, for one more thing? Sure, um, I do. You've done this important thing here of correcting some language and not only using the language of women when you talk about people who are pregnant. And that's an adjustment I hear happen a lot. People might also be hearing it and not always recognize it, where they'll say things like, um, you know, a person who's pregnant or people who are pregnant. And like, why don't they just say women who are pregnant? 
Uh, and there's yeah. reasons for that, right? It gets into our gender assignment narratives in this society. That's, I, I think so. I mean, I, I guess I should ask, yeah. is that is that is that what you're up to? Uh, and yeah. is that why you're trying to correct that language? Can you just say a little bit about that for people who say, boy, I have never really even thought about that before. And is that another way that some of our language structure limits some of the way that we think about this? And what about people who just say, when I talk about people being pregnant, I just always say women. I don't, you know, yeah. you know the, the whole, the whole yeah. package there. I think it's, it's sort of like a, a deeper um, dive into the conversation. And so if, if not everybody is, is quite there yet, I, that that's okay. But it, but in the same way that this is an intersectional conversation, that we understand how the attack um, on pregnant people's bodies is an attack on so many people, um, that intentional language of saying pregnant people rather than just women is important because so many people who do have babies don't use the gender assignment of woman. Mm -hmm. They use um, they, them pronouns. They um, identify as non-binary um, and therefore not including them in this conversation is discriminatory and not helpful. Yeah. Um, and I think it specifically brings in the bodily autonomy um, that is under attack for our trans siblings um, to mm -hmm. light into a, a greater way when we can say pregnant people. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's really helpful. And, and also just realizing what wordplay we do when we say woman. I know some people are like, well, there's a lot of girls that are having abortions, 15, 14 years old. And mm -hmm. should we yeah. separate out calling them girls versus women? And well, actually, when we even say women, we're just separating them out from men, right? Right. I mean, there's a language thing that we do with gender assignment that really starts showing up. When you say people, all of a sudden that doesn't divide the world into two chromosomal patterns or less, you know, or more. But it just says this is a human experience when people, yeah. when human beings are living through this and we can share our humanity to see, you know, where we would be in this moment. Because there's a lot of women who've never had children and feel very passionate right. about this issue. There's women who could, yeah. ne could never have children, just a, a, anatomically, they, they couldn't have children, but they're still part. And there's men who care a lot about these issues. And, and it's... It's just very fraught with the who gets to talk about it and how do we refer to whom and and this is part of what and whose you know, fight it is right and whose fight it is yeah. um, and and Ashley I see you in the in the chat and I I totally I I hear you like this is a um, a sticking point for so many people that no I, it has to be women and or or um, people in general, you know, even here in New York when we're organizing protests and rallies, there's always an internal communication about here's our speaking points and here's the words we're going to use. And a lot of times there's division around that. And um, whereas that's real, I also that's sad to me. And so I don't want that uh, word decision to be uh, divisive, but yet um, an opportunity and a learning point um, to invite more people to the conversation. That's my goal with it. Um, yeah. And, you know, and also if, if this is helpful, anyone who has a uterus, you know, that's, that's a way to say it like, in that, in that way, like anyone who could be pregnant. And so of course um, they will be defined and characterized as they will. But another important thing to say about this, and I, I was talking about this with someone recently too, it's in just the same way that um, 
the the fight for racial equality and racial justice is just as much my fight. It it, it is my fight as a white person, um, and, and not a way that I'm like coming along and saving, but because it mm-hmm. actually diminishes my humanity to not understand that my whiteness and the way that that plays out in society is um, limiting who I am, limiting yeah. the, fullness of, the fullness of who I might be. So in the same way, um, people who identify as men to think of this as a sideline issue, um, not really my issue, but let me just kind of like come along and advocate. No, actually, if People who are pregnant, if women can't be make the best decisions about their lives, mm-hmm. then that actually affects you, too, because that means that you still also are a tool to the patriarchy, that we are all living under this dominant culture and system of patriarchy, which does not let men fully be the best that they can be either. Doesn't let men process their trauma, doesn't let them be vulnerable, Mm -hmm. doesn't let them live into a different, a whole range um, of emotions and lived experiences. And so when we can understand that this is um, a fight that we are in together as humans, I think we're going to get a lot further along. So glad to talk with you about this today. Such an important week, an important topic. Um, For those who are interested, uh, we have two other videos that we did about a year and a half ago with two women who both had abortions and they talk about their stories. Uh, They're great ones. So if you are in our stream on YouTube, you'll find those there. If you follow our stream on Facebook or in other places, it's just more difficult to find. So go over to our YouTube channel at Vote Common Good and you'll find those. And we're talking with one of those people, uh, Elizabeth Krause, uh, tomorrow and um, maybe Ashley Abercrombie is going to join us as well to sort of do an update on their own conversations about uh, telling their own stories and how they've engaged with this as women of faith who've um, had abortions. So um, Amanda, thank you so much. Uh, your your spirit, your wisdom is uh, a real gift and we appreciate having, having you here with us. Thank you. Thanks everyone. Hey, thanks for all the people in the chat too. It's very full. And I know you don't all see each other because you might be on different streams, but uh, to Jim and to Michelle and Dave, and uh, I was getting nervous about doing this, Rachel and Betsy and try to name everybody and Heidi and Shannon and Monica. Uh, Thanks for all of your, your great input. Uh, Barbara, we appreciate all of you. Uh, Trisha being around and and being part of our, our, our little community here. So we'll, uh, we'll talk to you tomorrow.